Talking Landscape Photography with Christian Fletcher and Carwin. It is episode three of Light Minded with Christian Fletcher, myself, and legendary WA shooter, Mr. Tony Hewitt. How are you, legends? How you going, boys? Hey, yeah, good, good thanks, Carwin. Yeah, hi, Tane. Hey, Fletcher, good. how you going? Yeah, good. It's good to, good to talk to you again. I haven't, uh, we haven't spoken since yesterday, I think. Yeah, no, well, you know, there's something going on we've got to catch up on and uh, looking forward to doing a bit of shooting together in the near future. Yeah, well, that near future is going to be tomorrow, I believe. So who are you bringing down with you? Bringing down uh, Lau Norgard, who's one of the uh, big movers and shakers at uh, Phase 1 from Denmark. He's over in Australia and uh, he's coming over to the West to meet you, Christian. Uh, So I'm going to put (laughs) his job <laughs> I'll be driving and we're going to come down and spend a few days, as you know, and I'm looking forward to hanging out and um, showing Lau our beautiful corner of the world. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. He's going to bring some really nice gear down with him as well. So, uh, But we'll be, we'll be talking to Lau uh, in the next podcast, so that'll be interesting. Tony, do we know if he's going to bring the, the new phase with him? Uh, what is it, the IQ4? He is bringing the new phase system, I understand. He's uh, going to bring that down so we can have a little look at it and play. So I'm looking forward to... Um, you know, getting my hands on that new camera if I can get it off Christian. So I don't know how many he's bringing, but yeah, I think that's part of the game. You know, he's just going to bring it down so we can have a look at it um, and spend some time giving him some feedback. You know, uh, Christian and I have been shooting phase for probably seven, eight years, maybe longer than that even. And uh, this is a chance to not only see where they're at at the moment in terms of cutting edge, but also for them to listen to people like us. Uh, I believe he's been on, he's in the Eastern States at the moment. Uh, spending some time with people like Peter Eastway uh, and again just listening to what the shooters on the ground are doing with the camera, what they're looking for, the sort of things that they're looking to have incorporated into the systems I mean, state of the art, cutting edge, 150 megapixels of wow. sheer brick. Yeah and um, it was only probably a year and a half ago we were over in America, you and I shooting with the IQ3 so that's when the, the trichromatic came out so in that in that time that we've been there they've, they've come out now with this new iq4 infinity system and it sounds amazing 150 megapixel capture that's just it's just nuts i'm really looking forward to uh, getting a few of those i think uh, i think they expand out to about 900 900 just over 900 megabytes per shot as a 16-bit right. tiff so can you imagine what the hard drives are going to be saying no 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 boy i can't take it i can't take it <laughs> Yeah, and then of course with with the increase in technology as well as the megapixels, you're getting that you know improved dynamic range, higher and cleaner ISO use, etc. So I'm looking forward to see what they bring. Tony, a lot of people have heard of your work. Tell us about you. How did, how did you start in photography? Uh, so I started. The short answer is I I met a photographer at my sister's wedding. He was a wedding photographer, um, hot looking blonde. So well, he was. Um, sorry, he was. <laughs> she was. <okay. laughs> she still is. Uh, so I, I uh, kind of got introduced to photography that way and um, as we had a family I took over the business so I started in weddings shot nearly a thousand weddings uh, portraits and I've shot many thousands of portraits and still do I have quite a solid base of regular clients that every few years come back for an update on their family so that's been with me for a long time and I, I enjoy photographing people I also do a lot of commercial work nowadays and, and have gone from the small, um, random type of commercial work to having solid clients that I work with on a consistent basis on bigger jobs. Then uh, probably 
10, 12 years ago, started to delve into landscape for fun, mm. uh, landscape slash what we thought or I thought was fine art. But, you know, over time you start to understand what that word means mm. a little bit. But um, probably nowadays it's, it's definitely uh, a strong focus on my fine artwork. I've had just completed my fifth solo exhibition with Linton and Kay and, uh, you know, done several group exhibitions with uh, people like Christian, um, Peter Eastway, Dr. Les Walkling, Michael Fletcher as, a, as the ND5 collaborative group, which uh, pioneered a lot of initiatives in the industry in Australia. And uh, I enjoy working with that group and we do something every few years we get together. We've got, a, we got something being cooked up at the moment. So my, my, my sort of um, work life is very um, diverse. And nowadays I also do a lot of coaching, mentoring. I run a mastermind group and, and various things like that as well. What made you want to be a photographer? I don't like working nine to five and having a boss. <laughs> um, I think, you know, like I've got a, a good mate of mine that I've known since we were about 15. We got we catch up. And it's one of those mates, you know, you have in life that you don't speak to for three years. But when you do catch up, it's like no time has taken has gone. You know, you're just mates for life. And, and he's very, very successful in the finance industry. And he said to me, you know, I know two people that have spent their life chasing and living their passion. One is his brother, who runs a whale shark dive company uh, in the north of Australia. And, um, you know, Ningaloo whale sharks, I think, were dreaming or something. But anyway, he owns the boat, he owns the plane. And he spends his days out there swimming amongst manta rays and whale sharks and killer whales and... That's his business. That'd be terrible. And and Harry said to me, yeah. And Harry said to me, you know, and you're the other one. You know, you, you it's. I'm not a millionaire, but I'm rich. I, I'm rich in experiences. I travel to all sorts of parts of the world at different times. Every day is different. Mm. Um, in my, I'm I'm not pure landscape like Christian. Mm. I'm I'm predominantly landscape fine art nowadays, very much so. But I still, on occasion, will shoot a photograph of a baby because it belongs to a client I've had for 30 years, you know, they've got a new baby or something, um, or a family portrait. So every day is different. I might be on a, a mine site photographing a dynamite blast and then getting on a plane to go and give a talk in Melbourne the next day mm. and then flying to another part of the world to run a workshop with someone like Christian. So, you know, I got into photography because I saw it as a dream and when you're in your younger years, you're you don't really think about the future too much. Not many of us do. And it's like, I want to do this. That's what looks like fun. Mm. And then you try to figure out how to make it, you know, set you up for life or to be sustainable. And over the time, you find ways to make that happen. And I identified early that I couldn't shoot weddings for the rest of my life. After 15 years and a 1,000, I realized I'd just about done my dash on that. So you start looking for how to transition across to something else but still use your photography skills. And I have speaking skills. I'm a public speaker, etc. So, you know, um, yeah. So you've been renowned for your aerial photography, and mm. I think you you're apart from Richard Waldendorp, one of the one of the early adopters of of that genre. Now, I, I've seen some of your work. What's what's the uh, the most recent stuff you've done in, in regard to to the aerials? Well, the, the most recent scene would be the latest exhibition called Evaporate, um, which was shot mainly in 2018. Uh, and that is essentially an extension of other ones I've done where I started with more of a literal type of work. Um, it was born out of probably my first real experience of it was with you. And in fact, probably the first decent images I took in terms of fine art aerial, uh, you were sitting in the back shooting over my shoulder while I was shooting over your shoulder. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah. you know, as you do the same thing over and over, if you love it, you find your own voice. And I think it's fair to say that my work now, I wouldn't say it's a signature, but it's certainly something I look at and know that, yep, that's that's me and that's the way I see the world and that's how I want to express what I see. With your aerial stuff, a lot of people are shooting uh, with drones now too, and I think, Christian, you're shooting with the Phantom 4? Yeah, Phantom 4 Pro. But you guys started shooting out of Cessnas. What was that What was yeah. it like? Well, I still shoot out of Cessnas, you know, and, and just, just reflecting back on the last question, um, the, the last two big projects were evaporating. The one before that was Girt by Sea, which was something I did with a, another photographer, uh, Dennis Glennon, which was sponsored by Canon Australia. And... You know, that was a 31-day, uh, 165 hours, 32,000-kilometre aerial odyssey, six to eight hours a day, all shot out of a small Cessna. Um, and With no toilet, might I add. <laughs> with no right. toilet, yeah. yeah right. No bloody no well, service, no, no, no stewardesses, no, no nice meals, you know, no business class reclining seats. That's it. The logistics behind something like that is is just you know beyond. You, you don't realise that when you go up and do a little hour, hour shoot in a plane, local to home, that's completely different to doing thirty one days in a row, six to eight hours a day in the same plane. You know, two flights a day. The longest flight we did was over eleven hundred kilometres, and it was five and a half hours. You know, the shortest was probably an hour. I still prefer planes and helicopters because I like I like the kinesthetic connection I have with the camera. As an, ex- as an extension of the way I'm seeing. And for me, the drone, you know, I love drones and, and have a play with them and that, but not I haven't used it for any of my commercial or exhibition work or fine artwork, partly because of that, partly because I still prefer the extra megapixels I'm getting out of my Phase 1 mm. and the medium form here. Or, you know, with GERP I see it was all shot on a 5DSR and then 50 megapixels. So I like that connection and... Um, the other thing is when you're in the plane looking down, you're actually seeing what you want to photograph in context with everything around it. Mm. And when you're using a drone, you're really only seeing what the drone's seeing. So there's a couple of differences. Uh, look, I just wanted to ask, any close calls? And the reason I ask that is there's a very famous story with um, one of the grandfathers of landscape photography, um, <coughs> Ken Duncan, who was, was in a helicopter and he actually he dropped a camera. So he was looking out, out of the side of the, the, uh, the helicopter and you saw this, um, you know, this, this yellow and black whirling around. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a Nikon hitting the, uh, hitting the deck. Is it, mate, anything ever happened like that to you at all? Ever dropped a camera or had a plane crash? No, the closest I got to that sort of thing would have been uh, one of the ND5 projects, the Pilbara project. Uh, we had a plane. We actually had a helicopter, but they only had enough seats one of us had to miss out and it was me so i didn't get to do that helicopter flight but we had a plane that everyone went up in as well and had doors off i remember sitting in this little cessna um the door off next to me and i had my belt on and it was just a lap belt it didn't have the, the sash or no the sash as well that's right but it was a single going. clip and the pilot's next to me and he gets to the beginning of the runway and he looks across at me and he says you're good to go and i said yeah i'm good to go and he, he had his checklist his clipboard that he'd been working through that they do and he said good oh let's do this and he leaned back and and as he leaned back he put the clipboard on the back seat and as he came back his hand just brushed the the buckle and undid it and um and he undid it but it was so soft you would hardly notice it and we sort of both looked and i and i went like that with my hands and felt down and i thought oh i picked it up and he goes oh you better do that up and i remember thinking wow that's um you know, if that had happened, I hadn't noticed it. You know, in the first dip, we turned the plane and tilt the plane down on an orbit, and I would have looked, 
could have been falling down. So <laughs> Would have been your last It kind photo. of made me, it was a good opening, you know, for me to sort of make sure I always look after that sort of thing. But, you know, fast forward three or four years, I get comfortable with it, but you've got to be careful you don't get too comfortable. So that's the closest in that way. I've never really dropped the camera. I do get nervous when we're on workshops with helicopters, particularly the small ones, and mm. people get in there with their hat and they've got all their extra gear and you're thinking one little lens cap flies out that yep. door and hits that a tail rotor. Yep. And once the tail rotor goes, the helicopter's going to struggle. Well, actually, I was on a, a workshop with Nick Rains, actually up in the Kimberley, and, and um, the pilot goes, make sure you take everything off. Uh, we're going up in an R44. I make sure that, you know, there's no lens like caps, that. no... Uh, you know, don't um, don't have your, uh, your hoods on, all that sort of stuff. No caps. Anyway, this girl gets in and she's got a GoPro stuck to her head. She's got a, on a little head head mount thing. I'm not sure why no one picked it up. Anyway, she we took off and we I don't know, must have been a thousand feet. She goes to stick her head out and take the first photo, and the wind got under it and just out the back just went gone. And that's, we're so lucky it didn't go through the tail rotor. But that was she kind of looked around at me and I looked at her. And uh, her eyes are like saucers, and mine were like, we're still flying. Okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, there goes the GoPro. So somewhere up over Home Valley, if, if, you, if you're out that way, have a look around the ground. You may find it. Time for the top three tips. Be sure to be sure. <laughs> Time for the top three tips. Tony, what are, mate, what are the top three tips a landscape photographer can do right now to instantly improve their photos? Okay, um, I think that... One of them would be, for me, um, work with the light. So there's no point, you know, you can be looking at one of the most beautiful scenes in the world, but if the light's wrong, if it's midday and it's all working against you, then it, to me, you're not going to get the best out of that content. So you need to be there at the right times. And I'm still, you know, I, I remember travelling with Peter Eastway and another photographer, David Oliver, in, on the Great Ocean Road and we were going down to photograph the 12 Apostles and we got there just before sunset and by the time we parked and went down we were deliberately going down to shoot after the sun had gone down uh, to get that milky light mm. as we're walking down the path about 30 tourists <clears throat> amateur photographers who were on a bus tour started walking back up because the sun had set and as we walked past we heard one of them turn around and say um, something along the lines of, well, you can tell who the real, the real, you know, where the knowledge is. Or these guys don't know what they're doing because they've missed the light. Yeah, right. And we were <laughs> buckled. And there I was walking down with one of Australia's all-time best landscape photographers, in Peter Eastway. Mm. We got down there. We got exactly what we're looking for. So, you know, understanding when the best quality of light is going to be there is certainly a tip. Um, Hand in hand with that, I suppose, is that you really do need to be working with a tripod if you're using lower ISO. So don't push your shutter speeds and don't take risks with camera shake. Now, there are times when you can use cameras handheld and you will get a perfectly sharp image, but a lot of the time when you've got that beautiful, soft, ethereal quality of light late in the day or before the sun's come up in the early gloaming, um, and you want a decent depth of field, F11, F16, etc. You're you're going to find that if you're holding it at 30th of a second or 60th, and you might think when you look at the back of your camera, it looks as sharp as a tap. Yeah. But if you're going to put it on a wall and you want it to be a really decent quality shot, then I think tripods are pretty important to have. And probably the third one is to um, keep it simple. <clears throat> I um, now I've always been fascinated to watch the way the different way that people. Uh, approach the landscape photography and having travelled extensively with some of Australia's and the world's best such as 
for Peter Eastway as Les Walkling's Christian, you know, is here with you on the show. Mm. Um, the way they approach the scene, they don't rush straight into it. They'll take a minute. They'll look. They'll get a sense of what they want to photograph, and they'll take simple principles to get the right frame around the parts that count. Keep it clean. Keep it simple, and make it easy for people to understand what you want them to look at. The approach. I think, um, and again, it's difficult for me to answer on their behalf, particularly since one of them here listening. But I think from what, <laughs> what? everybody Different approaches it slightly different. I think you know one of the things I've noticed, even with the best, is they they're not locked into a preconceived idea. That's where you can come unstuck. I think if you get locked into a preconceived idea of exactly what you're getting, then you'll quite often miss out on something special. And the idea is to be able to respond in the moment to what's in front of you. Having said that, you will go to certain places at certain times because you know that they are more likely to throw up certain types of scenarios. Um, Christians are one of, and I've been on record many times saying he's one of the most instinctive photographers I've ever seen in my life because he'll show up and he knows exactly where to be in terms of which end of the beach, which part of the hill, etc., at to get the right angle, the right composition. He thinks three-dimensionally. He may not agree, but he thinks he has very good spatial awareness. Les Walkling will tend to walk to the top highest point. He loves elevation. Peter um, is more secretive. He'll he'll move uh, and try all sorts of different techniques with his cameras, and you know he'll start like to work time lapse and so on. Pete's like a snow leopard. You know, he, once he's out there, he's very elusive. You go, where'd Pete go? You only know. You only see him again when when, when we're packing up and, and leaving. And, you know, where, where were you shooting, Pete? Oh, well, you know, just oh, yeah, just uh, over there somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah literally. Tone and I. This is this is what's panned out so many times on our shoots. We, Tone and I will be at the back of the car getting our gear. Pete's already got his. He's he's got it on his back. And we'll be getting our bags out and we're talking, oh, what do you reckon, what do you reckon, Tone, is this going to be any good? I reckon that bit over there looks pretty good. And we turn around, what about you, Pete? And we turn around and there's just crickets and there's no Pete. And it's like, there's about half a kilometre between us and the beach and with nothing else around, there's, you know, and he just disappears. It's like whether he just goes and hides behind the front of the car until we walk away and then he sneaks off. But he's just like a, he's a snow leopard. That's it. I think that's, a, that's the only way to describe him. I think, um, and a lot of, the one thing that I, I believe they have in common, you know, the Ken Duncans, the Nick Rains, uh, the Richard Walden thoughts, etc., is the ability to respond to what's in front of them and to, it's, it's a connection, not just mechanical. So when you start off in landscape photography, or you, you know, camera clubs, workshops, you learn the rules, you know, rural thirds and, you know, more complicated uh, compositional rules, etc. But you've got to move beyond that. You've got to become more instinctive and I think you need to be able to be somewhere and be there instinctively, both with heart and mind. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a mechanical, uh, logical process of, you know, put that at the third point and all of that. It's feel the picture. You've got to feel it. And that's what all the good, the top guys have, the top girls, you know, they, they feel it. And then they work out, okay, how do I put a frame around what I see to express what I feel so that others feel it as well? Yeah. I always say to my um, myself, when I look at a scene, uh, would I hang that on my wall? And um, if the answer is no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hang that on my wall. Then I generally walk away. So that's um, that's one way to, to think about it. And I think you know we can look at something and see a tree, or see a hill, or see a sunset, or, or see a mountain, or you know, a mountain goat, or whatever. 
But <laughs> what makes a photograph really work is not it's not what you see literally. It's what's be beneath that that makes people, you know, fall in love with it. You know, there's something about the picture that it, it resonates within them and it connects with other things other than oh, it's a tree. It needs to be more than that to be something that people remember, um, whether it's people, places, or things. You know, I, I I firmly believe that, and I think that's what the best photographers uncover and, and express. Yeah, I think. Um everyone has such a different idea of what they think is a good photograph so uh, you know, having the gallery all the time we're always having so many different people come through and I, just just this morning I spoke to a lady on the phone and she loved a photo I took in America of a of a street sign it was, well, it was this big sign it was Astro Burger a sign for this place called Astro Burger and, and below it was this little um, road and a cement mixer which was tiny in the scene the rest of it was just blue sky and, and she loved that and and i was so so happy because it's something that i love as well but most people would look at that and go oh, yuck i mean what is that so you know, the eye the beauty is in the eye of the beholder and um and for, for so many different people it's so many different things and and i guess as a photographer as well you like a certain style or you like a certain light or you like a, a certain scene you know, you, uh, I, I know people that have gone to Iceland and all they've wanted to do is, is photograph the most iconic places. You know, the, the, oh, I saw that waterfall, I want to get that. And then other people that will turn turn their backs to those waterfall and, and photograph what's on the other side or what's behind them. And Les Walking was a great, great example of that. I mean, how many times did we go out towing to the Pilbara and we're all pointing our cameras in one direction and then we look behind us and Les has got his camera going the other way again. Oh, what's he looking at? It's like, oh. I don't know, it doesn't really seem to be much back there. <laughs> but, but, you know, invariably he'd come up with something and, and we just wouldn't have seen it or weren't in that same headspace. I think I think understanding the difference between look and see, um, you know, we can all look at something, but we all see something different. There's been a lot of talk about uh, recently about um, folks walking into other people's compositions just as they're about to um, take a shot. And um, we call them comp zombies. So here's a little um, voiceover I had made up for us. Zombie close calls. Give us some cl- comp zombie close calls, Tony. Oh, Chris has been playing my shots. Let him back. He's had more than I got the front. Um, probably, the, <laughs> probably the comp zombie king for me would be Eastway. Um, he'll do that deliberately just to make sure you don't get the shot. What he's walking. That's in. probably not backside, true, but backside backside quite happy to foster that uh, rumor and keep it growing. I'm sure Christian will help me keep that one growing. Um, look, I think. When you're out in public in the public areas, so working with your mates, travelling with other photographers, generally you pretty look after each other. Workshops, we tend to direct people to, you know, hey, here's the line, don't step in front of people's shots. But when you're out travelling, particularly on holidays, other people will step into them. Um, don't be rude, you know, it happens. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe make a big, you know, the only thing I would do is point the camera directly at them. You know, if they're in the corner, I'd turn it around, face it at them, Good tip. look at them, and then maybe even say smile. Um, they'll get out of your shot pretty quick. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe. Well, look, I, I've been um, watching uh, The Walking Dead, and I'm quite uh, quite fond of uh, people walking like zombies in, in, in shows now. So, yeah, bring it on, I'd say. I, I love the scale. I love seeing uh, someone there. And, in fact... Speaking of that, we, and we'll probably have to put this up on Instagram. I've got a photo of Tony uh, in uh, in America, and he's walking in front of these golden hills. 
and uh, I put it up and it's just the way he's walking he's got his camera in one hand at phase one and he's walking to what up towards the hill and uh, someone made a comment oh I didn't know you were photographing zombies now in, in America and and uh, that was Nuz who said that and uh, yeah I thought that was pretty cool so we'll put that one up because that's a, that could be the, the cover shot well I'd probably had no sleep but I'm just going to say on a more um, more serious note but if you do give people more shots sometimes they can add value sometimes they add scale Sometimes they have context, uh, you know, if it's something extraordinary that you're looking at by having a comp zombie in the, in the corner of your shot looking at the same thing, it kind of brings the viewer into as if they were there as well. So they're not all bad, um, but, yeah, there's times when you wish they had disappeared. Fantastic. Hey, Tone, thanks for your time today, mate. Um, I'd love to chat to you guys, you a bit uh, you know, more in the future if we get, get a chance. And uh, and I think, look, you're coming down with Lau, so let's... Um, Let's get together and, and we'll talk to, to Lau about his uh, new phase one system that he's going to show us and uh, maybe we can have some thoughts on that as well. So thanks for joining us today, mate. It's been great. No worries. It's been uh, really, really good fun. Thanks, guys, for having me and I look forward to you know, catching up with you another time. Thanks a lot, Tony. And uh, look, if you want to check us out on Instagram, just um, just search for, and this is three words, I'm going to get it right this time, Light Minded Podcast because I, I normally stuff that up. So look out for that on Instagram. Also, if you want to send us an email and send us um, one of your images so we can have a chat about it too, uh, just email us at lightminded617 at gmail.com. Thanks, Tony Hewitt.